Progressive Rugby League. Hey, hey, John and Duncan. I love feel-good stories because they make you feel, well, Jamaica making their first ever Rugby League World Cup certainly does count as a feel-good story. But more than that, such a momentous achievement also qualifies for where were you when status. And as such, let me tell you where I was when Jamaica qualified for Rugby League World Cup 2021. I was in Hobart, actually. Thanks for asking. More specifically, I was at Mona, the Museum of New and Old Art. More specifically still, I was in the Madonna Room at Mona, For those who haven't been, the Madonna Room consists of about 25 TV screens, each featuring an all-singing, all-dancing Italian, crooning along to Madonna hits a cappella. It's quite a scene. And as I sat there on a beanbag with my girlfriend in the corner of the Madonna Room, tapping my toes and dipping my shoulder to like a prayer, I learnt that on the other side of the world, Jamaica had defeated the USA in Jacksonville, Florida to book their ticket to International Rugby League's biggest party. I was so chuffed we stuck around for Material Girl into Express Yourself. As I regaled people of our trip when we returned to Sydney, I would always mention the Madonna Room at Mona as an undoubted highlight. Looking back now, though, I wonder if it had an unfair advantage. But let's get to the topic at hand, shall we? We know Jamaica will step into the International Rugby League spotlight in 2021, and we know they will be everyone's second favourite team, at least. But how did it all come to be? And just how much sweat has been deposited to get to this point? Well, who better to ask than Romeo Monteith, Jamaican director of rugby, and a man who has been there from the very beginning, a man who perspired that very first drop that turned into a river of sweaty dreams and eventually propelled Jamaica to World Cup qualification. How has Jamaica reacted to the achievement? How are the reggae warriors positioned for their debut World Cup appearance? Well, let's ask all this and more to the man himself, Romeo Monteith. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Absolute pleasure. Uh, Romeo, you're talking to us from Toronto. You've recently moved there, but you're, of course, Jamaican born and bred. So take us to Jamaica, if you will, for those of us who would like to travel there one day. Can you give us a sense of what we'd smell, what we'd see, what we'd hear when we'd first set foot on the island in Montego Bay or Kingston? Well, the first thing that would hit you is the heat. (laughs) It would smack you square across your face (laughs) and you'd be like, whoa, you know. But obviously, you know, Australia is a hot place as well, so it might not be too bad for Aussies, right? (laughs) But that's the first thing, the heat and the humidity is the first thing. Okay. You know, next thing is probably, you know, the smell. You know, I mean, it's it's a tropical island, Mm -hmm. so it's very green. You know, there's a a lot of plant-based smells as you travel around the, the country. Right. And of course, you know, the local style of cooking and stuff like that, very spicy, very mm. hot. So, you know, I mean, as soon as you get into like a town or so on, you know, you, you'd smell people jerking chicken on the streets or mm. boiling crabs, you know, stuff like that. But definitely heat, it never gets old, even for me whenever I travel. <laughs> you know, when I get out of the airplane and step outside, the first thing is that humidity that just smacks me, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. Now, can you paint us a picture of the real Jamaica? Because we obviously see and hear of the beaches, the reggae. Is that a reflection of life for the average Jamaican or is that mainly for the well-off and the, the tourists? Well, you know, Jamaica, like many places, it's a place of many experiences. Mm. Jamaica means different things to different people, even to Jamaicans, you know, Mm. what it means to be Jamaican. Yes, there are many commonalities, but definitely there are vast differences in the way that you experience Jamaica based on your social class and your background. Mm -hmm. So first off, the Jamaica 
that is a tourist destination is definitely a reality for some people. Yeah. Even for some locals, for those locals who are well off and they're in the upper class, frequent days on the beach in the sun, you know, drinking red striped beer, you know, that's common. Right. You know, that's a culture, you know, it's a very relaxed culture. You know, nature is a big part of what people do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, depending on where you live as well, you know, if you live on the north coast, which is Ocherius going up to Montego Bay, Mm-hmm. You know, going to the beach is like a, a daily ritual for a lot of people. So that picturesque Jamaica is certainly there for locals to enjoy and tourists as well. The other side to Jamaica is that it's a third world country, of course. Mm-hmm. And so the economy there is not very vibrant. You know, tourism is the main source of income. Mm-hmm. And people who live on the North Coast and in Montego Bay and so forth, you know, that's their main way of earning. But... The average Jamaican, you know, I mean, if I'm not wrong, the stats say that the average Jamaican earns maybe, I think it's three or four thousand US per year, you know, per annum. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's a country where there's a lot of poverty, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, literally struggle to make ends meet and to live a good life. Mm-hmm. So, so outside of the picturesque thing, which is there for everybody, you know, everybody can enjoy nature in Jamaica, you know, where whatever class you're from, you know, you get to relax, you get to go to the beach, you know, you get to go drive in the country and, and just, you know, really enjoy the island. But apart from that side now where you're enjoying nature and, you know, you're enjoying the company of the people, which on a whole, you know, Jamaicans are friendly on a whole. Yeah. But, you know, any country where poverty is extreme, there's a lot of crime. Mm. And, you know, crime is something that's pretty big on the island as well. You know, the, the drug trade is perhaps the, the biggest issue. You know, so the gangs form around that and create a lot of problems. A lot of people know that Jamaica has a high murder rate as well. You know, we have skipped sometimes to being the number one or the number two country in, in the Americas. Mm. But I think the Central American countries have now surpassed us. But it's still ridiculous. You know, I mean, um, on average, it's like between 1,000 and probably 1,200 people die violently each year, which is crazy. Mm. Most of it is gang-on-gang warfare, you know. Mm-hmm. But for the average citizens... Occasionally, you know, you can find yourself caught up in a situation. You can get caught in a crossfire. Mm. You know, there's a lot of petty robberies and stuff like that that goes on as well. You know, a lot of house breaks. Some of the gangs, that's what they specialize in, and car theft. So, you know, it's, it's the same problem as in many countries. Mm. But obviously, as I said, the, the whole issue of poverty makes it a little bit more extreme than, say, your you know, average first world country in the cities. Mm. So, yeah, it, it's a hard life if you're not well off. Mm. And it's a difficult life, but it's a life that people enjoy. And I mean, Jamaicans are always proud of where they're from. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's an island. So people are always wanting to leave as well. You know, <laughs> that's just a feature for our culture. Yeah, I think the island is 2.7 million people and about three times that live mainly between Canada, UK and the US. Right. So, you know, we are people who are always on the move, you know. Mm. Well, thanks for, for painting that picture for us, Ramea. I really appreciate it. Now, how has COVID-19 affected Jamaica? We hear a lot about North America and South America on our news services here, but how are Jamaica and the, the Caribbean islands generally faring with COVID-19? Well, COVID has impacted us as well. At the moment, things are just starting to reopen. You know, things were on lockdown from March. Mm-hmm. Right now, so far, we've had about 800 ported cases. And what we see is that things are slowly returning to normal. The borders have been reopened. 
they're allowing tourists back in. A lot of people are, you know, against that mm. because since the opening, the number of cases have, have gone up based on imported cases. Mm. Sport is on shutdown, so there's no, no footy being played right now. We had to abandon our college competition. We were at round seven out right. of ten. And high schools, we were at the semi-final stage of the under-14 and under-16 competition. Mm. And our first modified girls competition with three schools, we were at the finals, you know, mm. grand finals time. When we had to pull the plug, what has happened is that our national club championship, the NCC, which starts religiously the first weekend in June each year, mm. that has been postponed. And we are currently waiting to see when the government will give us permission to get back to training and get that yeah. off. Our own version of State of Origin has been cancelled for 2020. Okay. First game was due to have been the end of April. Yeah, so, you know, we're going to have females playing for the first time as well in that. Right. So, so yeah, it, it's it's been a downer. It's been hard. So, economically, a lot of boys are out of jobs, you know. Yeah. So, it's been pretty tough. Death has not been too bad. I think we have unreported, I think, maybe eight or nine deaths. Okay. So, that's where we are with it. Okay. Now, Romeo, can you paint us a picture of the domestic rugby league scene in Jamaica? You sort of touched on it there. It's been going for 10 or 15 years now. And from what I can see, there are obviously adult divisions as well as school and college leagues, which is a fabulous achievement in and of itself. Would you describe Jamaican rugby league as still being in its initial growth phase? Are you at the phase of trying to consolidate the gains you've earned? Or is it still at that fragile, fledgling point where it could go either way without constant attention? I think it's a mixture of everything, to be honest. Mm-hmm. The first game was in January 2005. You know, our association was established July 2004. The first NCC was, you know, the summer of 2005 with four teams. Where we are now is that we have a strong community of people who love rugby league and who want to play rugby league each year. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a passionate group of volunteers who continue to put a lot of time and effort into ensuring that there are leagues available for people to play. Mm-hmm. And so we are confident that the sport can continue. But at the same time, when you compare to like major sports, you know, like football or cricket and so on or basketball, yeah. our reach is nowhere as deep as theirs because rugby league is centered mostly in the urban areas, you know, it's like yeah. Kingston, Kingston and St. Catherine. Mm-hmm. And there's a small outpost in a rural area called St. Elizabeth with one school and one club. Mm-hmm. So what you find is that we have 14 parishes, you know, in Jamaica. Right now we're in three of the 14. Okay. So most of the island is rural. But if you look at football, as I said, and basketball, cricket, whether it's urban or rural, those sports are, have saturated it to everywhere. Right. So we're definitely not overconfident. We are satisfied with where we are based on our limited resources. Mm. So we have basically um, this year seven Division One teams. Division Two has had seven teams as well last year with a few of the Division One teams, feeling teams in that, right? Mm-hmm. And we have six colleges who play. So it was about 20 teams playing senior rugby league in 2019 and who were starting in 2020. On, on average, we have between 10 to 12 high schools each year playing as well. Great. We have under-19s, under-16s, and under-14s. The under-14 competition, I think we had eight teams registered this year. Under-16, I think, was 10 or 11, and under-19, 10, you know? So that's an average year for us. We had managed to expand the junior rugby league into more rural areas before, 
but those programs collapse due to you know there's a lack of funding mm. you know and not being able to sustain it so like when one person who was pushing it moved yeah. you know that person was volunteering you couldn't find someone else with the knowledge who was willing to volunteer so you know it just stopped yeah we had it in montego bay for about two years you know we had four high schools and we were looking to expand and then same thing happened you know mm. one guy moved mm. he was coaching two schools and we just couldn't find anyone else to put in the free time to keep the program going yeah then now we started female rugby league in earnest last year mm. um, with two high school girl teams and we have increased up to three for 2020 and um, we have formed two senior female teams state of origin like so we're building top down with the females Great. right because mm. It's a difficult sport to to get females who want to play. You know, netball is what is popular on the island mm-hmm. in terms of females and um, and track and field. Yeah. One of the issues with rugby league in Jamaica is that it's not a sport that people will look on and say, "Oh, I'm going to play rugby league because I know that I have clear opportunities." You know. Yeah. Whether to progress to professionalism or whether to earn scholarships and so on. Yeah. Our colleges, our six colleges, do offer full scholarships and part scholarships to players. Oh, wow. Yeah, so like the, the university I coach at, I have nine students on scholarship now going, you know, into next season. And there are other schools that probably have, well, there's one other school that gives a decent amount as well. They have about, I don't know, maybe 10 guys or so on scholarship as well. Mm. Most of the rest, they, you know, they have between anywhere from two to maybe six. So there are opportunities, but they're small, you know, as I said, yeah. compared with football. And uh, Football is what... Every young man wants to play because the local competition, you know, it's semi-pro, you get paid to play. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are many Jamaicans who have signed for clubs overseas and, you know, they, they earn decent money. Yeah. So the average kid wants to be a footballer or he wants to do track and field. So it's quite difficult to sort of generate the cohort to sustain a rugby league ecosystem because those pathways are not necessarily as entrenched as the other sports. And not as interesting, you know, for the kids. Let's be honest, you know, <laughs> that type of economy, people are always looking for a way out. Yeah. You understand? So at the end of the day, especially if it's a contact sport, you can get seriously injured. So kids love it. You know, you, you introduce it in the school, the kids see, oh, I want to play, I want to play. Mm. You know, the principal is like, ah, <laughs> nah, it's, it's too dangerous, it's too rough. Yeah. medical bills you know yeah. a lot of parents as well when they find out that their kid is playing rugby a lot of them, of them stop the kids you know mm. because they're saying hey if you break your hand or your foot how are we going to pay that, that bill yeah so at the moment we're a thousand players in 2018 for the first time wow registered last year you know we had 900 and something mm-hmm. as i said where we are now we're okay you know we're not overconfident mm. but i won't really feel very confident until we have about maybe you know three to four thousand players playing the game annually that's the type of numbers that i want to generate yeah yes yeah, it's, it's quite possible i mean being in the world cup it's more promotion for the sport yeah and we're at 12 schools now there are about 200 high schools in jamaica we're only in 12 <laughs> mm. so i don't see it being unrealistic to see rugby league being in about 30 schools mm. you know within five years if I can find persons to coach and if the schools are willing to play the sport and being in the World Cup, who knows? Mm. Maybe that will bring a few administrators over the line who, you know, we have approached before and who were a bit, nah, you know, I don't yeah. want to do this because of, you know, this and that. So is that the core of your plan to grow the game in Jamaica? It's through the schools and, and colleges and then it can hopefully flourish from there to the senior level? Yeah, definitely. The thing is that... Sports in Jamaica, it's based around the school system. High schools generate more crowds for football than they 
Premier League, which is our wow. top. Yeah, more people go to a high school football match on average. Yeah. The, so the schools are pretty big. You know, they're like the college system in the states, right? Yeah. Our track and field annual championship sees thirty thousand people in the stadium for that. Wow. You know, f- for seeing a championship, you know, if they get ten thousand people, they're happy. You know. Mm. But the high school thing is sold out every year, wow. so people are fiercely loyal to their schools. And the schools is what really drives the sports culture. When you look at it outside of football and cricket and netball and basketball, mm-hmm. those are the only sports that have a large club base at the senior level. But if you look at the high school now, all type of sports are played in high school. You know, hockey, lacrosse, you know, rugby league, rugby union, mm. badminton, all that kind of stuff. So my hope is each high school that we go into, once the program becomes entrenched and it becomes culture, Mm. You know, we try to push for an old boys club to be formed. Mm. You know, so like right now, we have literally, let me see, KC is a high school, Calabar, Cedar Grove, BB Coke, Spanish Town. So literally we have maybe six out of our 10 or so schools mm-hmm. have club teams, you know, have old boys club teams. So for me, that has always been a strategy that I believe can work. Yeah. You know, you push them to enter Division 2, and then over time, now the best ones, you push them to come up to Division 1 and stuff like that. So, as I said, my aim, my dream is 30 schools over the next five years. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that would be significant growth. And I think that the club game will naturally progress. You know, especially if we're able to raise and keep some of the funds from the World Cup. Mm. And then be able to support teams. You know, that's the basic stuff. Balls, you know, yeah. jerseys. So, once you give them that, they'll play. Because the young people, they like to play the sport. Mm. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. I think 20 senior clubs outside of the colleges is also feasible within the next five years. But it all comes down to how much interest can we generate? Can I get junior rugby league international competition? That's a major thing that's affecting us as well. Mm. Because, again, being an island, everybody wants to travel. You know, Everybody wants to represent their country, that kind of stuff. Mm. So, say I had an annual junior series where the boys could go to maybe Florida and play or Toronto and play. Mm. That in itself would generate a lot of interest, mm. you know, with parents and stuff like that. Just as the senior team does, you know. Yeah. So, those are the things that we're trying to, yeah. to work on to maintain it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's amazing work and achievement that you've already done through schools and colleges. And, of course, schools are so important. I mean, you look at what happened in France. Rugby league was not allowed in schools for decades following the games banning in World War Two, which was enormously detrimental to the game in France and they, they slid slowly and painfully from world beaters in the 50s to second or third tier now at best. So, yeah, I mean, from a from an outsider's perspective, yeah, getting into schools and colleges, that's a, a wonderful legacy. Romeo, what led you to the game of rugby league? And I suppose, more importantly, what made you want to persevere with it? For me, I, I got introduced to rugby union way back in 1992 right. when I just entered high school. I was from the country, so... I only knew about cricket and football and track and field. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like the average Jamaican kid growing up, you know, you're very aggressive. You fight a lot, you know. As we say in Jamaica, you play karate, <laughs> which is karate, you know. Kick and punch each other every day, and you know. Right. So, to be honest, when I saw this sport with a ball where people were running and smashing into each other, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, hmm, that looks like fun. 
So literally, immediately, I wanted to play. Only thing is, I was so skinny, I was like a stick. So you know, my guardians, you know, they were adamant that I should not play. And as a matter of fact, I went against their wishes okay. for seven years in high school because I, I was told not to play. Right. And I said, well, you know, they say you're gonna die, you know. And I was like, well, let me die, <laughs> you know. So that was my introduction to rugby. I really liked it. And then in 2004. Rugby league, you know, came to Jamaica via the whole formation of the West Indies Rugby League in England, mm. you know. So, Stephen Price and those guys, you know, they started a West Indies team. And then, I guess the International Federation told them at the time that if you want to have a West Indies team, the game needs to be played in the West Indies. Right. And that's how they reached out to not only Jamaica, but, you know, they sent emails to Trinidad and Barbados and, you know. Mm. All the, the islands, they sent emails to the rugby union people. But Jamaica was the only one to actually follow up. Okay. And in Jamaica, we were in a unique position because our union, our rugby union, you know, we had a lot of issues. So there was a set of people who didn't like how things was being done. And when the opportunity came to, to look at another version of rugby, still rugby, mm. but it could be independent of the current administration, you know, that's why it was jumped at. You know, so at the time, there were about five or six rugby union clubs mm. at the time playing in Division One, And three of those clubs, you know, the Army, Sharks and Vauxhall, those clubs took the decision to say, we're going to try rugby league. You know, I was involved with the Sharks from back then. You know, so they're currently doing the Park Red Sharks. You know, they're current multi-reigning national champions. Mm. And that was my club. You know, that's just where I started to inquire about what is this whole rugby league, you know. <laughs> I had actually seen some games on cable, right? Mm. But I wasn't sure what it was. I know it was rugby because they were tackling each other. They had no pads. Hmm. But obviously, the guys were rolling the ball through their feet. And I was like, you know, why are they doing that? That's not, you know, you're supposed to do that. I always wondered why those guys were playing like that. Hmm. When I got a formal introduction to rugby league, I realized it's a different sport and everything. Hmm. What really inspired me as well, you know, there was an Australian halfback called Dane Campbell, who actually came to Jamaica. Um, he used to play at the Newcastle Knights. Hmm. You know, he came because he was involved with the West Indies team, you know. So when I met him, that is when I actually believed in it. Because honestly, seeing his skill level and seeing the way he played the game yeah. was just so different. You know, it was just so different from what we were used to. Right. And I wanted to learn more. I wanted to find out more. I wanted to know how is it that he got to this stage where all his movements was just so perfect. The passing was perfect. The kicking the intelligence of the game mm. so that really intrigued me you know yeah and i decided to become uh, a student of the game yeah pretty much from that encounter playing tag with with the Dane. and yeah i just took it on fully i was a part of the first board myself and roy calvert you know we are the two persons who have been there since from the beginning mm. and ever since we've just been building you know so i learned a lot in the early days from the first director of rugby who was an englishman called paul morris Mm -hmm. You know, so he, along with his wife, Sue Morris, you know, they did all the administrative work, 04, 05, 06, 07, 08. Mm. You know, Paul died, I think, in 08. And that's when I, I think 08 or 09 is when I became the director of rugby. Mm. And then carried on his work and expanded the dream and, you know, mm. went to the high schools and the colleges and all that stuff. In terms of the national team, you know, dreaming big about the World Cup, you know what I mean? Finally being able to achieve that. So, so yeah, mm. that's, that's my journey. It's been a long journey. It's been multi-layered. You know, I do everything in the association. <laughs> yeah. Administrative work, coaching. On average, I'm coaching probably sometimes six, seven, eight teams per year. Wow. You know what I mean? Do you have to coach against yourself sometimes because you're coaching so many teams? Yeah. Oh, no, 
no, I didn't get to. We had to win. So like my right. college team was in the competition and my club team. Yeah. But yeah, both had to win in order for us to meet. <laughs> but you know, one of us lost. You know. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so yeah, and all around me is is people like that. You know, people who Jamaicans. We, we really love sports. You know, we really love sports. Mm. That's the first thing, and I think that part of our culture is what actually made the program survive because many people are surprised that it has lasted so long, you know, because mm. at the end of the day, we don't do what other people do, you know, we don't pay people and stuff like that. Yeah. So normally, you know, you'd expect it to die out, but people genuinely love the game, you know, once you play the game, you know, the, the kids fall in love with it. Yeah. And most of them will stick to it until at least, you know, maybe 22, 23, 24. Yeah. And then you have the few diehearted people now who will continue. Okay. So the high school system keeps it going, you know. Mm. That's just what I want to keep building on. Yeah. Now, Romeo, can you give us a taste of the game day experience for, say, a top division encounter or one of those state of origin games that you mentioned? Is there a, a community of supporters or, or family and friends that come out and support each of the teams? Or what's that like? All right. Well, yeah, definitely. I start from the top down. So the highest level of domestic rugby league in Jamaica is what we call parish of residence, right? Mm-hmm. PUR. So that's our version of state of origin. Team Blue versus Team Red. Kinson versus St. Catherine. Right. We play those games in a mini stadium setting, you know, so we're always looking to attract a crowd. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I think our best years, you know, we have probably had maybe four or 500 spectators. Not are the best ones. Mm. We charge people to come in. You know, there's a small gate to enter for that. You know, it's probably maybe two US dollars to come in. You know, they can buy food and stuff like that. There's a PA system. The game is recorded. There's commentary. So that really is the best level for us mm-hmm. in terms of organization, support, everything. The skill level as well is normally highest you know because most of the players are national players sure so it's, it's a real good experience the fans get involved you know they're loud and, and stuff like that you know we have a few games like those on youtube if people want to look it up below that is the ncc our grand finals experience is the next best thing mm-hmm. you know the last few years you know the red sharks are always involved in that they have a decent following you know they have a decent loyal set of people maybe you know, maybe 50 to 100 people who, you know, once they're playing at home, you know, they're at their game. Yeah. So if the grand finals is at the Hayden Park, definitely going to be a large crowd. Mm-hmm. So there are certain grounds where people come out and watch the games. We don't charge for that, but the atmosphere is really good, you know. People from the other teams come out and, you know, their horns blowing and, you know, it's very loud, it's very exciting. The average game in the competition does not attract a large crowd you know i mean mm. the average game anywhere from i don't know from 10 to 100 people sure it just depends on where the game is and who is playing you know the weather because jamaicans once there's one ounce of rain <laughs> nobody leaves their, their home unfortunately that's <laughs> a bit like so, sydney <laughs> yeah it, it's, it's terrible it's terrible <laughs> you know if the sky gets dark they stay home <laughs> So, you know, yeah. so the average games during the competition, you know, it's, you don't want to get a lot of people out, but diehearted rugby people come out, you know. Yeah. The big thing is because we don't have a home for ourselves, we have no, there's no rugby field, mm. so you can't really promote it. That's the biggest challenge that we have. If we had a ground that we play at every week and people know that there's a game on, you know, there's a restrooms, you know, there's food on, there's a PA system people will come out, you know, because that's also our culture. You know, anywhere music is and something is happening, people come out. Yeah. But because we play all over the place at football, fields, wherever we're allowed, you can't really build the type of fan base that you want to build. Yeah. And is that on the, the cards, Romeo, to, to get a ground? Uh, 
well, <laughs> currently say it's on the cards because <laughs> as an association, you know, we're not in a position to purchase yeah. like a ground for ourselves. When we qualified for the World Cup, you know, we started asking the government for some assistance. And mm. I know that there are plans being looked at in terms of identifying a ground in Kingston where rugby league and rugby union can use and all mm. that stuff. But that's probably a long way off. Yeah. So it's probably going to be some time. I mean, ultimately, we want our own ground. As an administration, I think that's one of the things that we definitely will be looking to see what is best for us. You know, Kingston is landlocked, so there aren't really any space in Kingston for you to build a new field. Mm -hmm. But if we go further out a little bit, you know, maybe we can look at, at something down the road. Okay. But yeah. that's a big dream for us still. Having our own ground would be massive in yeah. terms of sustaining the sport, you know. Now, Romeo, who plays rugby league in Jamaica? It's, of course, known as a, a working class game across the rugby league world is it similar in jamaica no in jamaica there are very few sports that is really separated in terms of class you know mm. so if you say polo where they ride a horse and hit the ball every jamaican will say oh yeah man rich people sport yeah 20 years ago if you said if you said tennis people would say yeah man rich people sport mm. but nowadays you know i mean people from all classes are playing mm -hmm. golf is similar mm. but no field sport is really separated along class line Okay. Obviously, the majority of the people are working class people. Mm. So, mm. the majority of our players are definitely working class. Sure. And middle class. Upper class people in Jamaica, they don't really have, I won't say they don't really have time for sport, but by the time the kids get to a certain age, you know, by the time they get to 19, 20, they, you know, they're in yeah. their family business and so on. Sure. So, you lose them. But in the high schools, you'll find guys from all different classes. It's just based on where the school is. Because mm. we do have one or two schools that people would say are uptown schools. So, you know, it's like mostly more well-off people go there. Mm. And they play as well. And then you have schools which are slam-bam in the middle of an of inner-city area where, you know, yeah, 100% of the kids that are really, you know, from, from poor background. We're in the colleges as well. So, you know, the colleges has an interesting mix. Mm -hmm. You know, you have people who are well-off sending their kids and you have people who are not so well-off using loans to go. Right. So the college teams are all, there's also a strong mixture. What I find is that it depends on the team. Mm -hmm. And even within our own culture, what I realize is that some of the guys, based on the team you play for, you know, they may say, oh, you know, your team is uptown. Or, oh, you know, you know, our team is a, a ghetto youth team, you know. Mm. So... It's a mixture of people, which is good. Yeah. Now, Romeo, is there a Jamaican or West Indian rugby league philosophy that's developing, a style of play that uh, Jamaican players are leaning towards? Yeah, yes and no. In Jamaica, there's a distinct or almost distinct way of playing this, the sport, mm. you know, which is pretty much off the cuff. It's very individual based. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the boys like to express themselves. And so it's just like our football, unfortunately. Um, the crowd goes crazy for individual skill. So when you step somebody and he falls, like literally, you know, people start banging on the fence and, you know, <laughs> screaming and acting crazy. So the players, that's, you know, that's what they try to do yeah. all the time. So un unfortunately, one of the weaknesses of the sport in Jamaica is that in terms of playing structured rugby league, that has not been something that has been the focus of most teams over the years. Mm. You know, so teams like the Red Sharks who... When we, because people like myself, who was a coach for eight years, you know, obviously traveling to the UK and the US and so forth, mm. and seeing how the game is played at a semi-pro level, you know, I came back and instilled that kind of structured thing, you know, mm. in the team. Mm -hmm. All the other club teams refused to do that, you know. <laughs> they said they don't want to play like that. They don't want to be robots. <laughs> so they play off the cuff, you know. 
nowadays we're in 2020 now i would say that there's like a you know there's like a, a mixture throughout the clubs now and the teams mm. but most teams on average you know i'd say most teams play off the cuff and it comes down to individualism versus playing for team structure okay when you talk about the national team now it, it's different because mm. obviously we have uk semi-pro and pro players mm. and we have you know jamaican amateur players so it just depends on which jamaican teams assemble on the day Obviously, when the team is full of UK-based players, it's a more English style, obviously. Mm. If there is a strong mixture between the two, then it's definitely more off the cuff as well. Yeah. So I think it's evolving. And I don't think we're there yet, though. You know, like people yeah. talk about the Fijian way of playing and stuff like that. But I don't think we're there at the Jamaican way of playing. Okay. But I think we're heading there, though. Very interesting. Now, we'll get on to the national team now. So I explained in my introduction my experience of Jamaica's Rugby League World Cup qualification. Quite exciting, if I may say. But I'm guessing your experience was slightly more exciting. What do you remember about that 80 minutes against the USA and just as importantly, the celebrations that followed? Well, you know, it was an interesting day for me because we tried in 2011 didn't qualify. Mm. I took over as head coach in 2012, have been since then. 2015 we went and we didn't have a UK-based coach. It was just myself and Roy. Mm. I remember, you know, we lost to the US by one try, 18-12, and we drew with Canada, you know. I remember that campaign, we were confident, but we were still unsure because USA has always been a boogeyman for us. Yeah. I remember that there was a distinct difference in 2018 when I went. In 2018, obviously, you know, we had Jermaine Coleman on board, who's the head coach at Scholars, you know, so he's the lead UK coach for us. Yeah. The, the team had been playing together since 2016, right? Two years. Mm-hmm. So they had played Ireland, Wales and France. Mm-hmm. Basically the same bunch of guys, you know. So, to be honest, on that day when we went out to face the USA, I actually felt confident you know i was definitely more confident than 2015 mm. i know the boys were confident as well you know they had everything that they asked for you know they had a pro coach in the camp mm-hmm. you know we had a, a very strong team and i think everybody was confident so i wasn't worried that first 15 minutes of the game you know we seemed to be in charge mm. and i was like yeah man you know this this is how we should be playing yeah but then the usa came back really strong towards the end of the first half and I think the score was like 16, 12 or something like that. And I was like, man, you know, this is going to be tight. Yeah. You know? And then the next 40 minutes was basically 40 minutes of a heart attack waiting to happen. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, because we weren't scoring, they weren't scoring, we weren't scoring, they weren't scoring. You know, we were both raiding each other's house. And, you know, yeah. I was like, you know, we're not putting them away. It's, it's going to take one mistake. And, you know, that's it. And I was on the edge of my shoes because I wasn't I was seated and I was standing for the entire game, you know. I just remember looking at the clock and thinking, you know, 30 minutes, then 25, then 20. And I was like, okay, 20 more, mm. hurry up and get to 10 minutes, you know. <laughs> then when it got to 10 minutes, I was like, okay, hurry up and get to 5 minutes. Got to 5 minutes and I was like, wow, you know, I'm sure we can hold out for 5 minutes. And, you know, that's when the bench now... You know, we started screaming encouragement at the players. You know, some of the players were out on their feet, you know, like just gapping. Yeah. And we were just like screaming like, come on, guys, you know, one more tackle, one more tackle. Don't give up, don't give up. And the bench got very loud, you know. If, if, I don't know if you've seen that clip, but there are one or two clips on YouTube where our vice chairman was videoing on his phone. <laughs> There's also a clip from a journalist who, who was there. Mm. And it, it just shows the tension on the bench. You know what I mean? And then at the final whistle, you know, we all just run out screaming our heads off and just acting all crazy, you know, because it was just the tension of that 40 minutes, you know? So yeah, it was, it was certainly, for me, rugby-wise, 
it was certainly one of the best days I've experienced. You know, just to let go of those raw emotions because, you know what I mean, I think that 2015 was a lot of disappointment for us. We thought that we definitely should have qualified in 2015 based on the squad that we had. Mm. And, you know, it was just frustrating, you know, in terms of how the campaign played out. And I think that 2018 was all about relief, you know, to, you know, you, you know, we have done it. Yeah. And I think that we just rode those emotions for the next few hours and, you know, I mean, some people cried, literally some of the players were crying. I was like, you know, it was yeah. just mad intense. Yeah. Certainly a day to remember, you know, I mean, I don't know if you can f- experience it twice, but mm. who knows if we qualify for the quarterfinals at the World Cup, you know? Yeah. Maybe there'll be some tears again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I did see that video. Maybe it was Steve Mascord who was there at that Steve, time. Steve, right, yeah. right, Fabulous, right. fabulous footage. Now, Romeo, has qualification and the visit of the Rugby League World Cup trophy, the Paul Barrier trophy, led to a spike in interest in Rugby League back home? Well, yeah, there was interest in terms of when, when the trophy came there, the media was all over it, you know, a few government people, you know, was involved in that as well. You know, they went to some schools and stuff like that. So, hmm. so yeah, on the ground, it definitely did create a buzz. I know that the members of our Rugby League family who actually experienced the trophy, I know it meant a lot to them, you know, um, it went to the... The GEC Foster Sports College, the only sports college in the Caribbean, mm. that was really good. It went to the Cedar Grove Academy, which is one of the schools that started female rugby league. Mm. So, you know, a lot of the, the kids you see, you know, were, were those kids. And it meant a lot to them, you know. Within our family, there was a buzz, definitely. The media, the wider media picked up on it as well, as I said. That was good. I think that it's inspiring for persons within the rugby league family. I'm, I'm not sure that it would really mean much to the average Jamaican who, you know, doesn't really know much about rugby league and definitely doesn't follow it. Mm. But as I said, just from those media clippings and stuff like that, obviously more people would have been exposed to actually, you know, okay, so this is a cup that they're going to go to next year and stuff Mm. like that. And it's a beautiful trophy Mm. as well, you know, so it definitely draws the eyes and um, I was was happy about that. So, you know, the visit was quite good, quite meaningful to us. You know, being able to share our journey as well. And of course, you know, the World Cup has those clips that they can put out again and again. And yeah, it's been good. And it mm. was good. And hopefully, yeah, build on that, you know, for the tournament itself and, and get some more interest from that. Now, how are the Reggae Warriors preparing for the World Cup? How are you going to make sure you're ready for that very first game? You've got in your pool New Zealand, Lebanon and Ireland as your pool opponents. What do you think is a realistic goal for the Reggae Warriors? Well, you know, preparations, obviously 2020 <laughs> has been mm. a disaster. You know, we won't get a game this year. We have some big plans, our domestics, because um, now we have kind of reshaped our structure. You know, so now, you know, we're not, we're not saying Jamaica A anymore. We're talking about the residents, you know, we say Jamaica Hurricanes. Mm-hmm. So we were going to go to Florida and take on the USARL South All-Stars, right? Mm-hmm. So our best domestics to test themselves against the best guys in, in the South. We're really looking forward to that, and that was cancelled. We would have had a game in June as well against one of the home nations. That was cancelled. We were in advanced talks with Wales to play for the Billy Boston Cup mm. in Wales in October, and that was cancelled as well. Mm. So, yeah, and importantly, the America's Championship was to have been in Kingston. We, we were to play Chile in the semifinals, USA, Canada in the next semifinals. Mm cancelled and our female national team was to make their 13th debut against the states so that's a blow <laughs> you yeah. know it's, it's been a massive disappointment to be honest there's no mm. other way to describe it 2020 yeah. all the players have been able to do is to you know 
try to keep fit at home, mm. you know, working out. Locally, some of the boys do regular workout on Zoom, mm-hmm. you know, with our, our local trainer. You know, the UK guys are, you know, seven pros and pros, so they have their own programs from their clubs working with. We don't give them something, you know, specific to do because, sure. you know, we know those guys keep themselves in good shape, yeah. So that's all that we have been able to do, just the home workouts and, you know, we are actively making plans for 2021. Mm-hmm. We definitely wanted to do something in January. We wanted to see the majority of players available in, in our pool by playing two games in January. But again, the championship has been cancelled and League One as well. Yeah. So we doubt we can have that anymore. The closest thing we can do is probably do a fitness weekend with the boys, mm. a testing weekend with the boys in January. And then hopefully May next year, the America's Championship has been postponed to the US. Mm-hmm. So we have to find the funding now to take all our teams there and play so that most of the domestics will play in that. Hopefully, you know, if we get three to five UK-based players coming, that'll be good. But it's, it's going to be in May, so it's going to be difficult. Yeah. You know, let's see what happens there. June, we're hoping for a mid-season test again. Mm-hmm. And then one friendly game before the World Cup. Mm. around about October 16th or, or so or 15th is what we're looking at because what, what we're trying to do is to keep a, the same program you know since 2016 the mission has been to play two games in the Americas at a minimum mm-hmm. two games in Europe at a minimum mm. that way we keep all the boys active now we have the June mid-season break so we are trying to incorporate that going forward into yeah. what we do you know so we did play the USA last year in Kingston in mm. June for our, our mid-season test so that was good for us that was the last, you know, international that we had. And then we had England Knights game in the UK. So we do have a good sense of what we want to accomplish each year. And next year, I think that if we go into the World Cup with four internationals under our belt, you know, two in the America's Championship, one in June and then one in October, mm. I don't think there's much more that we can ask for yeah. from part-time players. So that's where we are now. Yeah, considering the situation as well. Now... Reading last year that you are intending to include local Jamaican players in the national squad, are you confident that they'll be able to hold their own if and when required in the World Cup? Well, first, I think no. I think the statement should be corrected. You know, okay. the, the national team involves domestic based players and UK based players from mm-hmm. day one. You know, I think I think a lot of people misunderstand that and believe that the national team is you know UK based players. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is not the national team based on domestic and UK-based players. Mm-hmm. Who we call up for the national team has been down to finances. So in 2016 and 17, so you know, we played Ireland, Wales, and France, right? Mm. No domestic players were involved in those games. Mm-hmm. But that is not because we didn't want any to be there. I mean, I didn't attend those games either because you know, yeah. at the time, based on where we were financially, we just didn't have the money. So we qualified for the World Cup things have changed a little bit in terms of the type of support that we are getting now. Okay. So we definitely want to do things the way that it should be done. So, I mean, all teams should involve domestic players. You know, so, I mean, for the World Cup, it's no different. Yep. There, it's not a matter of if there will be, but there will be domestic players in the World Cup squad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's Jamaica's squad, you know what I mean? So, obviously, you know, you have to give the people who are growing the game on the island and keeping the game going, you know, you, you always have to ensure that those people are appreciated and shown a type of love, mm-hmm. you know, to keep that energy burning. I think the players can step up to the plate. Realistically, we, we know it's no easy task when you put a professional against an amateur player. Mm. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's what sports is about. It's about the contest, you know. I think that our boys locally, whoever is selected, you know, I think that they will do us proud. 
yeah, I think that they will go out there and, and give 150 percent, mm. and I think that they'll be able to carry themselves, you know, and represent the domestic leagues well. In the England Knights game, you know, we did have two domestic players mm-hmm. in that squad, so it was 15 UK based and two domestics mm. against a team of all Super League professionals, mm. and you know, our, our local guy Kamisi McCain, we threw him in there at prop. You know, he he lasted, you know, the first 15 minutes. Yeah. He didn't do too bad, you know what I mean? We had Jensen Morris as well, who got the last five minutes on the wing. And, you know, we definitely were not displeased. What we need is just more opportunities for that. And also, in terms of the climate, the, the biggest issue is the climate, really, for the boys. It's not the level, you know. What the boys complained about was just the, the cold and, you know. Yeah. They had blood in their throat and stuff like that. So, that's a real issue for me. Mm. I think, athletically, Jamaicans are, for some reason, we don't know why, but we are some of the most gifted athletes in the world. And I mean, you know, people who follow sports know this, you know. Mm. So we are able to step up athletically and, you know, as long as a player doesn't feel too pressured, they can perform, you know. Yeah. Against the U.S., you know, I mean, the U.S. was a quality team in the qualifiers. And, you know, one of our local guys, you know, I mean, he played... Yeah, about 25 to 30 minutes in the second half, you know, mm. and he really held his own. So I know the guys can step up to the plate and I'm, I'm expecting them to step up. But there's no pressure, you know, everyone is equal. You're a UK player, you're a Jamaica-based player, you're equal. Mm. You have a job to do, you know, go out there and do the job, you know. If you can't do the job, then, you know what I mean, you lose a place in the team. That's how it is. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that's great to hear and, and thanks for making that clarification. Romeo, what are the methods that you personally have used to educate yourself on the game over the years? Have there been resources provided to you by the International Federation or has it been just more about trying to consume as much rugby league as you can? I mean, can you actually watch Super League or the NRL in Jamaica on cable and can people access that easily? All right, so let's start with the access to the game first. Mm, Okay. The NRL and Super League can be accessed occasionally on cable. Mm. So Fox Sports, from time to time, they carry games. Mm. It just depends on the period you're in. I, yeah. I remember a few years ago when, religiously, we could watch the game on cable. We, we knew it was coming on. We knew the days. And, you know, if you still play it enough, you could watch it. Mm. And then they changed that, you know. So it was Fox Soccer Channel or something like that, or Fox Soccer Plus. Mm. Then that channel got discarded. And, you know, I think it's a little bit more difficult now. Mm-hmm. on cable in Jamaica to be honest a lot of the boys they use different methods some of them use you know they go online and they try to pick up streams mm-hmm. some of them who are more mature and working and you know better financial means they actually have purchased you know the watch NRL app okay. and so I know some of the boys use that you know, we used to do group watching as well, you know, like years ago, we used to like just go to each other's house and just, you know, if somebody had the channel, mm-hmm. go to your house and watch it, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Just to say, I think it's poor that the game is so inaccessible globally. Mm. And I think it's really poor that both the NRL and Super League, you know, they don't see the value of making games accessible on YouTube mm. because the game is exploding, you know, all across the world. And again, you learn if you're able to see the game. That's right. Watching four to five minutes of highlights is not helping anybody. Yeah. Because the players end up just trying to emulate what they see in those four to five minutes, which is people scoring tries, you know. (laughs) So that's crazy. In terms of myself, yeah, man, my education has been twofold. It's a mixture of both. In the early years, between 2004 to 2010, yeah, it was all about self-learning. You know, we had VHS tapes back then Mm. (laughs) that Roy and I would sit down and pour over. You know, that Dane Campbell sent across from Australia, you know. Right. We got a few from the UK as well. 
I've had a few trips to the UK myself. You know, I've been able to see a lot of things in action, you know, like Roy and myself, you know. We learned a lot when we went to the States as well. Way back in 2008, you know, there's this guy, Daryl Spinner Howland, you know, he's an Australian who mm. ran the Jacksonville Axemen. Right. That was my first real education of rugby league, you know, in terms of how to organize a team and playing in channels and stuff like that and, you know, using players. That's, that's where we started to learn that stuff. Okay. Dane Campbell as well, as us, we've spent hours, literally, like, just hours on talking, you know, asking questions and mm. hours, hours <laughs> in the early days. Then, now, when I became, like, the development officer for Jamaica, more formal educational opportunities came. So I've done several courses with the Rugby League European Federation, you know, match official courses and coaching courses. Right. I've done the tutor courses, you know, Ryan myself. Mm. So we have learned a lot from that. You know, it's ongoing now. The, the education thing is gone online. So it's become more detailed in terms of access to certain things, you know, if you're in that community of trainers and learners. And that will continue to improve significantly as well. You know, we have had several UK teams come to Jamaica over the years, especially okay. the British Amateur Rugby League Association, Barla. Mm, mm. They have toured Jamaica a number of times. And, you know, whenever those guys come, it's a chance again for the locals to actually talk about the game and watch the game live at a higher level and learn from them. Mm. So a lot of self-learning occurs from there. Last year, we had the Lionhearts over from the UK, so that was good. So it's a mixture of both, you know. We're in the information age, so persons who want to learn, you can learn, you know. We got our hands also on, on like a training CD years ago, maybe 10 years ago. It was like an NRL training CD, you know. All right. And there's just a lot that we learn from then, especially how to break down, you know, the moves, you know, from the beginning, like if you're doing a block play, you know, stuff like that and... You know, learning the names and trying to teach that to, you know, the boys and the coaches back yeah. home. But it's difficult. At the end of the day, where Roy and I are as coaches, you know, we are way ahead of most of the other local coaches. Yeah. Because of the length of time we've been in the game and mm. the level of exposure. Yeah, well, but, it sounds like, yeah, access to NRL and Super League games is the key there to really unlock the, the talent for the, the next generation. And, yeah, you'd like to think the International Federation could work with the NRL and Super League to, I don't know, fund some subscriptions to... I don't know, the Super League and NRL apps that can enable you guys to watch it easily. So, But anyway, that, that's something for a, another day, perhaps. Well, the last thing on that, no, I think if you look at Rugby Union and, and the access to sevens and stuff like that, that's what we need to be doing. Yeah. We need to make the game accessible. That's just the bottom line. Mm. Emerging markets like Africa, the Americas now, you know, Brazil is taking on to the game. Mm. You know, the game is in Chile. Some guys in Central America are playing in, in Guatemala, Nicaragua, those countries. Mm. The bottom line is, when they want to learn the, about the game, they go on YouTube and all they see is rugby union, or most rugby union. The thing is, lower level le- league is there, and about people, they don't know how to find it. Yeah. That's the thing, you know, you have to know the channels. But anyway, as I said. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Now, we're, we're running out of time, Romeo, but I just wanted to ask you one more question. You seem like a, a deep thinker, not only on the game, but on life in general. I'm curious to know what your long road with rugby league, this massive passion project, has taught you, you know, about life. And that's a tough question. <laughs> um, perseverance. It has taught me to persevere, to be honest, because there have been so many hurdles. There have been so much negativity at times. There have been so much sacrifices made, you know, mm. to stay in this game, to remain in this game. So perseverance, so that's one word. And I think another P word goes with it, you know, which is passion. Mm. You know what I mean? You have to have passion to do anything. And, and do it well because you won't always get the results that you want you won't always get success 
But if, if you have passion for something and if you persevere in it, you know, the, the rewards will come. And the rewards are not, it's not, it's not about becoming the best and, and winning titles and trophies and medals or earning money. It's in the impact on people's lives that you see. Mm. I mean, the biggest thing for me is to see a kid who is offered a scholarship yeah. to go to college back home. And after four years, you know, he's a qualified teacher. And now he has a job, you know, a kid who had no opportunity to go to college before. Mm. It's seeing that kid from the inner city who, you know, all his friends are gunmen, you know, they're in violence and crime and stuff like that and gangs. Mm. But, you know, he's a rugby league player and, you know, he's going out to games on Saturdays. He's not on the corner with them. You know, he's coming to training. Mm. You know, he gets picked in a national team. He gets to travel and realize that the world is a bigger place than just his block or his corner, you know? Mm. And his, his entire outlook on, on life changes. That's the reward that I like. Mm. So, you know what I mean? Perseverance and passion is important in anything you do, especially when it comes down to sport, because it's, it's not easy. I mean, sport for most people in developing countries, you know, it's, it's about vo- volunteerism, you know? Mm. There's little to no monetary reward. It costs you more, you know, a whole lot more, you know, yeah. to put into it, to keep it going. But as I said, if people think about the way that lives are, are changed and affected in, in positive ways, then maybe that's a juice to keep you going. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, also, nothing good comes easy, as, as you're proving, so sure. with all the hard work. Romeo, we're unfortunately out of time, but it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. The Progressive Rugby League family wish you and the Jamaican Reggae Warriors the very best for an experience of a lifetime at the Rugby League World Cup 2021, and hopefully a win or two along the way. So, Romeo Monteith, thank you for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. Take care in Australia. Progressive Rugby League. An incredible example of how hard work, perseverance and belief can achieve some pretty amazing things. Friends, thanks again for joining us. It's been real. It's been special. Until our paths next cross Rugby League hobby. And see ya.